We come now in our study to the Lord's Prayer itself in Matthew 6. We have very much lost the importance which the early church placed on the Lord's Prayer because we have failed to use the prayer the same way they did. Perhaps we can discover afresh the value of the Lord's Prayer if we understand how it was used in the early church. The Lord's Prayer was used in the early church service immediately before the actual Eucharist or communion ritual. The Lord's Prayer introduced the Lord's Supper. They reserved the prayer for that part of the worship service in which only baptized believers were allowed to participate. The Lord's Prayer belonged to the Missa Fidelium, or service of the baptized. The early church instructed candidates for baptism in the basic beliefs of the Christian faith before they were allowed to participate in their first Eucharist or communion. This course for new believers was called the Didache, which means the teaching. The church used the Lord's Prayer as an instruction manual for prayer. Phrase by phrase, they instructed the new believer in the Lord's Prayer and required the new believer to memorize the prayer before he or she was baptized. After the disciple was baptized, the person was allowed to participate in his or her first communion service. The early communion service, the Eucharist, was carefully controlled so that only genuine disciples participated. All others, even those who were seekers, who were seeking the truth, were excluded from what was perceived as the secret service of believers. As you can see, the early church did not practice attractional Christianity. They were focused on building disciples, not attracting crowds. Just before his or her first communion service, the new believer would pray the Lord's Prayer with the other Christians for the first time in a worship gathering. For this reason, the Lord's Prayer was often called the Prayer of the Believer. My friends, you cannot address God as Father, Abba, Father, until you have a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Prayer is family language. It is the conversation of those who are part of the family of God. We get to talk to the Lord of the universe and call him Daddy, because Christ gives us that right when we put our faith in him. We become children of God. Not everyone is a child of God's, only those who have come to God through faith in Jesus. Only then do we have a relationship which allows us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. Unbelievers are just reciting words when they recite the Lord's Prayer because they cannot pray these words to the Father except through the Son. So the Lord's Prayer is an instruction manual for the believer's prayer. A spiritual leader in the 1800s was once asked by someone to help him develop a deeper prayer life. Say the Lord's Prayer, she told him, but take an hour to say it. 
The prayer is an instruction manual that changes our perspective on life from me and my wants to him and his agenda. Notice how the prayer begins. Our Father who is in heaven. So, in prayer, we see earth from heaven's perspective. We live in a bumper sticker culture which says the future is now. To thine own self be true, and I gotta be me. One popular meme says, be yourself. People don't have to like you, and you don't have to care. Another meme says, be true to yourself and your feelings. Those are the only things in life that will never lie to you. Which is, of course, a lie. We live in a world of people in love with themselves, but prayer is not about us. In prayer, we look at ourselves through heaven's eyes. Prayer sees today from the vantage point of tomorrow. Prayer begins with the future to help us understand the present. So prayer begins with God, not us. The first three requests in the Lord's Prayer are you requests, thou requests in King James English. When we are looking at earth from heaven's perspective, first of all, we cry out for God's name to be treated as holy. In verse 9, we cry out for God's name to be treated as holy because we know it will. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. You will notice that the first three requests are all oriented around God, not us. It is the second set of three requests which are focused on us. We start with three you requests and move to three we requests. The order is significant. You must begin in prayer with your name, your kingdom, and your will. Our preeminent concern as Christians must be God's reputation, God's rule, and God's will. No matter how pressing our needs or how passionate our wants, we do not come to God with our needs until after we have focused our thinking on His plans. Prayer is a way to reorient our thinking, to reboot our minds, so that we see our present world, enslaved as it is by evil, and devoted to destruction from the vantage point of God's purposes. In prayer, the you comes before the me. Years ago, when our girls were very little, they were practicing with the other children in our church for our Christmas musical called Angels Aware. There was a song in the musical called Eye Trouble, E-Y-E, Physical Eye Trouble. One Sunday, they came home from church talking about the song. They had learned a new insight. They said the eye in eye trouble was not the eye we see with with our bodies, it was the eye inside of us. 
One of my daughters said, yes, daddy, before Jesus ever called it sin, he called it I. She had it right. All sin is I trouble. We build our plans around the almighty I instead of the almighty God. When we learn that truth, we are beginning, beginning to understand prayer. When we pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, we are praying about God's reputation in this world. To hallow God's name means to honor, reverence, or value God's name. The expression is passive. In other words, we are not telling God that we will hallow his name. We are asking God that his name will be treated as holy and valuable by others in this world. We want people around us to treat God's name in a holy manner, so we ask God that this would come to pass. We cry out to God for others to to hallow his name, to treat his name as holy, as set apart, or above and beyond all other names. Of course, God's name is hardly treated as holy in our world today. It is used far more often in our society as a curse word than it is spoken in reverence. As Christians, we cry out in prayer that God's name will be treated with honor and respect. The angels up in heaven, according to Revelation 4.8, cry out day and night around the throne of God in heaven, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy. We want the whole earth to cry out their respect for that same name. So we pray, hallowed be your name. Our culture today is crude and rude. People enjoy shocking one another with their lack of respect for anything, including the church. Sadly, that crude and rude culture has rubbed off on the church. Worship leaders are very casual, and even crude sometimes, as they seek to attract the world to the church. Preachers use crude language and even swear words because they say it helps people relate to us. They'll understand us if we talk like them. They are trying to make God's God relevant to this world. Wrong. 100% wrong. How can we expect the world to hallow God when we don't hallow God? We have made God hollow instead of hallow. We have hollowed out the transcendence of God, the holiness of God, the greatness and glory of God, and we have made him common and even profane in our world. We have made God's name ordinary and even crude, dragging his name in the mud by our words and our actions. We, the church, need to start hallowing God's name if we are going to ask God to hallow his name. It starts with us. How we live, how we talk, what we do, who we are, should hallow God's name if we want others to hallow his name. Yet even as we pray, hallowed be your name, we know it will happen one day. It's going to happen. 
So my friends, this is no prayer of despair at the rotten condition of our world. It is a prayer of faith, of certainty that God will bring this about in his time. God said in Ezekiel 36.23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. God begins to demonstrate his holiness, not out there in the world, but first among his own people. And eventually the whole world will one day treat his name as holy. This leads to the second you request. When we are looking at earth from heaven's perspective, we cry out for God's kingdom to be consummated, in verse 10. We cry out for God's kingdom to be consummated, because we know it will. We are to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We live our whole lives as Christians in the expectation of his coming kingdom. This is our future hope. The prayer asks God that the promised future kingdom would come to this earth now. To pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is to pray that God's sovereign royal rule would be fully exercised on this earth right now as it is already exercised in heaven. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine made this request highly relevant. The Russian army is killing, maiming, and destroying innocent men, women, and children for the sheer purpose of expanding an evil empire. To use J.R. Tolkien's expression from Lord of the Rings, the orcs are spreading their domination of darkness over the land. And into that world of evil we pray, your kingdom come, Lord. There are three elements to the biblical doctrine of God's kingdom. These three elements must be in place for God's kingdom to be functioning on earth. There must be a ruler who has the power and the authority to rule. There must be a realm of subjects for a ruler to rule. And third, there must be an actual reign, or what some call functional rulership. Rulership means that the king exercises his power to enforce his control over the realm of subjects. Well, Christ is the ruler who has the power and authority to rule. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. We are the realm over which Christ rules. God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, according to Colossians 1.13. Christ exercises his rulership over us, but his rulership is not fully exercised over the whole world yet. Christ is not exercising his rule on earth as he is in heaven right now. There's a war going on between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Christ will one day defeat the kingdom of darkness and rule over the entire world. 
The end comes, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.24, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. The last enemy to abolished, Paul says, is death itself. Then everything is under the full rulership of the king. That is when the kingdom comes in all its fullness. So when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for his rulership to be fully extended to every part of his creation. That is the theology behind praying your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But right now, right now we live in a war zone. We as citizens of his coming kingdom are actually fighting behind enemy lines right now. We are like the advanced troops of the kingdom who have parachuted behind enemy lines to disrupt the plans of Satan in the evil empire that he rules. We live in a world at war with the values and the principles of God. We live in a world at war with God's rulership. This world does not want God to rule. It is in rebellion against Christ's rule, and we are his advanced troops in the war for this world. D-Day, the invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944, codenamed Operation Overload, began with airborne divisions parachuting soldiers and equipment behind the German lines in France. Next came the gliders filled with more troops and equipment. The objective was to destroy or capture the bridges over the Orne and Diva rivers, as well as to blow up a key German battery at Mervilla. However, the night was shrouded in a very low cloud bank, and the paratroopers landed outside their scheduled drop zones. Soldiers landed on top of church spires and in manure pits, They landed on roads and farms, leading to a confusing situation on the ground. The advance army of Operation Overload had to think on the fly and reorganize for battle. It was two in the morning of D-Day. The Canadian Airborne Battalion, led by Sergeant John Kemp, landed behind enemy lines in France, but they didn't know where they were. The squad's mission was to provide protection for a team of engineers who were called sappers. The sappers were to blow up the bridge over the Diva River. The purpose was to prohibit the German army from sending tanks and soldiers to reinforce the front lines. But not only could Sergeant Kemp not figure out exactly where he was in the confusing terrain, but he couldn't find the engineers who had also parachuted behind the lines. Suddenly, in the dark of the night, he heard a bicycle bell ringing, and a young French girl came riding up to him. She had been out cutting telephone lines as part of the massive French resistance movement taking place all over Normandy. French-speaking Canadians talked with her, and she agreed to lead them to the bridge they wanted to blow up. However, She first led them to the German headquarters and wanted them to blow up the headquarters. Kemp refused because that was not their assignment, much to her disgust. 
So she led them to the unguarded bridge. After some reconnaissance, Kemp sat down to wait for the engineers to arrive. The girl was indignant. Are you going to do nothing, she asked? Are you going to just sit there? Well, Kemp knew his orders and would follow them much to her disgust. They would wait for the engineers because the engineers had the equipment to blow up the bridge. Soon the engineers showed up, set the charges, and the bridge was blown up. Mission accomplished. We, too, are on a mission behind enemy lines in this world. We have our orders from the Commander-in-Chief, Jesus Christ. Each of us have different responsibilities in this war, but prayer is the first weapon we all use. We who have bowed our heads and submitted to Christ's rule over our lives are called to fight for God in a world at enmity with God. Our weapons, my friends, are not the weapons of flesh and blood. We do not go to war according to the flesh, because the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.4. And our first weapon is prayer. We need to know what our commander-in-chief wants us to do. When we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we are sounding a battle cry. This is the language of war. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are shouting out a battle slogan. We are calling down the power of heaven to destroy the strongholds of earth. It is a battle we know we will win. His kingdom will come to this earth. His reign will be consummated completely, and the entire universe will submit absolutely to his rule one day. But, oh, my friends, we may not see all of that now. Just as the paratroopers on D-Day could not see the whole battlefield and were often confused. We may feel like that young French girl in Normandy and want to take matters into our own hands and start blowing up the enemy anywhere we can. We may see evil triumph and morality despised for now. But, we must follow orders from our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. And the first order is the order to pray. Our first responsibility is to pray. We have a small job to do in a big spiritual war, the war between the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. But we know how the story ends because the Bible tells us. So we pray in the expectation of victory. Listen to what John tells us in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. 
and the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So we pray with John at the end of the last book in the Bible, Revelation 22.20, he writes, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's where it's going. And my friends, when we pray now, we are praying looking to the future. Thy kingdom come. That's a future request. We begin by reorienting our thinking around God's reputation and God's reign, knowing that he will be treated as holy, and he will reign completely over this earth one day. And finally, when we are looking at earth from heaven's perspective, we cry out for God's will to be obeyed universally. We cry out for God's will to be obeyed universally. Because... We know it will. We pray, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there are two different versions of the Lord's Prayer, which, as I've said, is better titled the Disciples' Prayer or the Believer's Prayer. Luke 11, 2 through 4 is different than Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This third you request is not found in Luke's version. The simplest explanation for the difference is that Christ taught the same basic prayer on two or more different occasions. In Luke 11, he is speaking privately with his disciples and teaching them how to pray. In Matthew 6, Jesus is speaking publicly with the multitudes and teaching them how to pray. Furthermore, Luke is writing to a Gentile audience and Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. The versions are different because Jesus taught them to different audiences and Matthew and Mark wrote to different audiences. Jesus grew up as a child attending the synagogue service every Sabbath. The conclusion of every synagogue service was the recitation of a prayer called the Kaddish, meaning holy. The Lord's Prayer has many similarities, actually, to the Kaddish, so familiar to Jesus and so familiar to his disciples, they were used to praying this prayer. The Kaddish was the benediction of the service, and it reads, Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. And to this say, Amen. We can see the three you requests rooted in the Kaddish. The Jewish people and the early Christians lived in a world of evil. They lived in a world of oppression, of tyranny. They wanted God's kingdom rule to invade their earthly kingdoms and rule their daily lives. They wanted God to intervene in the here and now. A battle was being waged, and they asked God to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and replace it with the kingdom of light. The three you requests 
are linked. Each request adds to the previous request and ends with the answers being worked out in our lifetimes and in our daily experiences. Hallowed be your name is followed by your kingdom come and then your will be done. We are asking heaven to invade earth so that the values of heaven become the values of earth. In heaven, God's reign is fully consummated and God's will is fully obeyed. No one says to God in heaven, do we have to or I don't want to. Obedience is immediate and complete in heaven. God's will is always implemented perfectly with no rebellion. It is only we earthlings brought up with the values of earthly kingdoms who fight God's will, so it is only on earth that we need to pray this prayer. On earth, our values are warped, but not in heaven. Walt Disney first produced the classic story of Pinocchio in 1944. They re-released it in 1992. One movie reviewer writing for the Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegram wrote, Pinocchio rigidly enforces the finger-wagging behavioral codes of the 40s. Good boys don't tell lies. Good boys go to school. Good boys resist temptation and listen to their consciences. This is a catalog of 40s prejudices. Prejudices. I thought honesty... Integrity, self-control, and purity were virtues, not prejudices. Now they are considered unhealthy character traits, and people who advocate for them are bigots. Many political leaders believe that telling lies is acceptable, as long as it helps you win. The value system of our culture has been turned upside down. Twisting the truth will make you successful, not make your nose grow longer. As others have asked, who switched the price tags? What were once considered priceless character traits are now considered inconvenient prejudices. No wonder our society is in deep moral trouble. We have lost our standard for measuring what is truly valuable. In 2021, according to the Pew Research Center and the World Prison Brief, the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Highest in the world. We have 639 people in prison for every 100,000 in the population. 639 per 100,000. Compare that to El Salvador at 564 per 100,000, and Russia at 323 per 100,000. We have twice the incarceration rate of Russia. England incarcerates 131 for every 100,000, and Germany has a rate of 69 per 100,000. We have a crime problem in America. Chuck Colson, founder of Prison Fellowship, a ministry to those in, in prisons around the country, spoke at the National Press Club in 1993 when our prison numbers were skyrocketing. 
in that speech, he laid the blame on an amoral society which refuses to distinguish between right and wrong, morality and immorality. And then he told the story of Samuel Johnson, the English statesman, many years ago. Someone once told Samuel Johnson that a certain guest believed all morality was a sham. Why, sir, if he really believes there is no distinction between virtue and vice, roared Johnson, let us count the spoons before he leaves. Colson summarized his point in his speech by saying, The problem is, after decades of value-free tolerance, we don't have any spoons left to count. We live in a society which has no spoons left to count. What should Christians do living in that kind of a world? Pray. Pray. We cry out for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask God to move humans so that his will is obeyed on earth. Prayer is not a form of resignation. We can't do anything about the problem, so I guess we'll pray. Prayer is not being resigned to our impotence. We do not piously say to God, Your will be done, and then go quickly on our way if that, as if that's all we can do. Que sera, sera, oh well, too bad. In prayer, we express a passionate desire for God's will to be worked out in people's lives, beginning with us. I often pray that God's will be real for people and that they obey God in their daily lives, and the same for me. Prayer is no cop-out. Prayer is, of course, certainly not the only thing we should do when faced with a society where justice is unraveling and our culture is morally disintegrating. There are many other things we should and must do in the face of evil, in the face of a chaotic and immoral world. But prayer is the first and most important thing. Why? Because in prayer, we engage the power of heaven on behalf of earth. In prayer, we see earth from heaven's perspective. Sure, sometimes you may feel like your faith is like a candle in the rain hissing for air, as one writer put it. Just when you start to pray, the baby cries, the cellar floods, or the car breaks down. All the forces of darkness conspire against the saints in prayer. It may seem like prayer is inconsequential. You are only one, and who can stand against society's slide into moral oblivion? But remember, there is a light beyond the darkness. As Amy Carmichael, the Irish missionary to India in the early 1900s, wrote, To look up into a dark sky and see it suddenly open as lightning plays across it, to see in one revealing flash deep into the kingdoms of light, is to know what prayer most truly is. There's a mystery, but beyond that darkness is not deeper darkness, but light. Kingdoms of Light.
Prayer expresses a holy hatred for things as they are. It is the highest form of civil disobedience. Remember that Jesus taught his disciples to pray this prayer when the entire might of the Roman Empire stood against this ragtag band of twelve. Rome, filled with sexual immorality, infanticide, and debauchery, did everything it could to snuff out Christianity and failed. As one writer put it, to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. When we pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're at war. We are seeing that war through the eyes of heaven, knowing that God wins in the end. So pray, my friends, pray.